There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Roden, and you're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. I'm coming to you from Las Vegas, Nevada. The fellows are going to be back next week, so our producer, Aaron Matthewson, and I are recording a sort of preseason show. Aaron, how was your break, and how's New York? Hi, Bill. Uh, my break was really nice. I got to go home to New Mexico and visit my family. Uh, contrary to popular belief, it gets pretty cold in New Mexico. It was colder than new york strangely mm. um, wow what's the point <laughs> i know. well you know family but um <laughs> what's the point no it's just kidding <laughs> no but it, it, it was nice how was your break um let's see yeah i think it was good i'm trying to think where i was uh yeah it was good saw the rams uh roll over dallas mm. and um yeah so surprising um, right i actually did not think that was going to happen yeah it kind of ruined sort of the whole black quarterback story. Dak Prescott just completely, you know, didn't win. So, um, yeah, so that's, um, you know, that's, that's going to be tough. Well, you predicted that the Rams were going to face the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Are you still feeling confident about that? Uh, no, because I want uh, Patrick Mahomes and Kansas City to win. I think if, uh, well, they're going to face, I think it's going to be, obviously, you know, uh, I think the Rams, uh, I, 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 I think New Orleans is going to beat uh, the Rams because Demario Davis, who's a friend of the program, is playing for the Rams, and uh, and I think that Kansas City is going to beat uh, the Patriots. That would be amazing. Uh, I think yeah. my hat is uh, I'm I'm looking at the Saints to win it because of our Roden fellow Alana Bearfield. Uh, she goes to Xavier University of Louisiana, and uh, last the last time we had a podcast, Lisa Wilson from the uh, from the Athletic said that the Saints would take it. So okay, about that yeah, good. So the Saints are getting all the love. Well, good. The Saints it is, and we'll get some good content from Alana down in New Orleans. Yes, you always cheer for the story. Uh, anyway, switching gears, we have just a a very special guest today, beyond special guest today. Um, who's never covered the Super Bowl, but has reported other incredibly significant events in our nation's history. In fact, she is history. Uh, Dorothy Gilliam is an award-winning journalist, and she's in New York, in our New York studio, uh, with Aaron, and she's talking with us about her new book, Trailblazer, a pioneering journalist's fight to make the media look more like America. Now, if you haven't heard of Dorothy Gilliam, you got to look her up. Uh, in, fa- in fact, we'll put you on punishment if you've not <laughs> heard of her. Um, among other things, she was the first African-American woman reporter and columnist to be hired by the Washington Post in 1961. Uh, she was born in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, raised in Louisville, so she's not going back to either one of them. <laughs> uh, she, she, she stayed with the paper for 35 years, and she retired in 20, 2003. Uh, there's much, much more we're going to get into, but, but, but Dorothy, thanks so much uh, for being on the show and welcome to the show. Bill, thank you for inviting me. It's just a, a pleasure to be here and, uh, I'm looking forward to our talk. 
Um, first, just about the book. Uh, you start working at the Post in 61. Mm-hmm. When you start putting all this together, was there something that, I mean, you know, you kind of know everything, but was there some things that really surprised you about the, the things you had done, maybe either something you had kind of forgotten or, or, or um, you know, as you sort of polished off memories and things, were there some things that were illuminating, were some things that were hurtful, were there some things, you know, as you went to, when you sort of took this, you know, traveled down this, this road, were there surprises along the way? There were surprises along the way. And I realized that when I was at the Post in those early days, Washington was a very segregated city. And just the things I had to do to get the job done, you know, I could not get taxis out mm. near the Post. I could wave and wave, and, you know, sometimes they would stop, and they'd come, and they'd see my dark brown skin face and, you know, hit the accelerator. Uh, mm. That happened so often. Uh, but one of the things that uh, I knew was that this I was doing this not just for me, but for the next generation. And I think that came out of my earlier upbringing. I don't think I examined it. I don't think I consciously uh, uh, acknowledged it. But I do remember that I knew that I could not come back to the Washington Post and and describe the problems I was having. I could not do that. I could not go back and say, uh, I went to cover this uh, story, uh, this feature story. That was when I was, you know, just starting out. And um, they they mistook me for a maid and told me to go around mm-hmm. to the back door. Uh, because I, I was sure that that would be an excuse for them not to hire any more African Americans. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that um, it was, you know, kind of seeing how the strength of my early upbringing uh, was part of what helped me to see what I needed to do, even without necessarily articulating it to myself. Yeah. I just knew that I couldn't do it. And it was so uh, it was such a relief to me uh, when I went back to the Post many years later, because I actually quit uh, after when my children were born. It was before the women's movement. There was no kind of flex time, so I ended. I worked at the post till about sixty-five, and then I quit for seven years. But when I went back, you know, after after the the urban uprisings, after mm-hmm. the Kerner Commission had told the media that they were contributing to two Americas, you know, one one um, black and one white, and the media kind of hung its head and said, "We got to do something." Um, so there was more openness to African-American reporters. I went back as an editor. By then, as as black women were being added, they there was a feeling that they could come back and share what was happening to them uh, as they went out and pursued stories, that they could do that without uh, endangering the, uh, the potential for other black women to be hired. And I remember when Michelle Martin, Michelle's now at, at NPR, and yeah. um, she she was uh, there as an intern, and she went to I won't name the the uh, organization, but she went to check on the job, and she was uh, uh, she was waiting for the the people who were to to interview her. Uh, somebody 
thought she was a, a secretary. It was, and she was just outraged. Uh, and she could come back and talk to us about it and, and, and share, uh, uh, her disdain. And I'm trying to remember if it was, they called her a secretary or a maid. I don't know. Whatever it was, it was, she was there to be interviewed as a reporter. And, uh, she came back and, you know, kind of said, how dare they? Uh, 20 years earlier, if I had right. done that, uh, that, that would not have happened. And it just shows me that the, the power of, the freedom movement, the civil rights movement, you know, how many things that minorities have been the, um, the we've been the pioneering minorities. Huh? And, and yeah. that opened so many doors for other people in our society. The women's movement came after the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, the, you know, the disabled movement. So we've just been, we've been so important in the society, but of course, rarely getting the credit for all the things we've done. Yeah, you know, uh, it's kind of following on that, too. And, you know, I mean, it's one thing to talk about the past, but I guess we could only talk about it as it relates to the future. And I'm looking at the story, you know, we're recording this on a um, uh, on a Wednesday, and the story coming out of D.C. is that the House has voted to... Um, censure uh, 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 Representative uh, Stephen King over, in fact, is asking him to resign over statements that he recently made kind of defending white supremacy and white nationalism. You know, this is 2019. And, you know, here's somebody, like, you know, you, you spent all this time pushing and pushing and pushing against racism. And here we are in 2019, and it's still there. So I guess Maybe one of the lessons when you speak to young people is that, you know, well, yeah, what happened in 61, 61, but there's a, it's not over. You know, I think maybe that's one of the things with young people that, yeah, you can do all this stuff, but this stuff is still there. It's different than what you faced in 1961 and in the 70s, but it's still there. And and I wonder if that's one of the, the things that you still talk about when you mentor, you know, young people, young black women, that this is still there. No, I think that's a very important message. And and part of that is because so many uh, lies have been told in this nation, you know, about, you know, white supremacy. And when you when you kind of glorify one race and then you then you you, you know, make the other race seem inferior, uh, you know, that is that's white supremacy. That's that's what has what happened for so long, and uh, and that's what why I think the Ameri- you know the freedom movement of the civil rights movement was so important because it was it was the beginning of saying uh, you know we will not take this oppression you know we are we are are human beings like Malcolm X said you know and mm. we demand our our right to to be human beings. You know, mm. at this day, at this time, by any means necessary, and mm. uh, and and we see what a long struggle it has been, and it continues because right. so much is, uh, so many things are not told truthfully. They are, they're they're not really uh, there's a, there's a hesitation uh, to really uh, address issues, and a lot of it is about power and about money. Yeah. Uh, you know. Mm. Uh, the white people have mo- most of the money and most of the power, and uh, 
there are going to be some interesting repercussions of this of the whole Trump era. I don't know what they'll be, but you know, the, I think it's going to have some profound effects. Well, mm-hmm. that makes me think. In your book, you wrote about diversity fatigue. And I was wondering if you could talk more about that. And, you know, recently CBS came under fire because they announced, you know, who's going to be covering the 2020 presidential campaign. There are no black uh, reporters listed. And people are kind of like, how did that even happen? And I I guess sometimes it makes you wonder, what have we accomplished when that happens in 2019? Well, CBS also said that that an incomplete tweet had uh, given the wrong impression because... uh, there were going to be African-Americans, but this was just the first wave. And everybody just looked at each other and said, oh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. You know, right. I mean, you know, that that's those are such old stories. Uh, uh, you know, there are African-American digital journalists. And the the idea that uh, once if you have a Latino uh, reporter and if you have an Asian-American, you kind of you've checked the minority box right and we don't need an african-american mm-hmm. uh, yeah that's a that's a very uh cheap uh way of of viewing the world uh because uh diversity means inclusiveness that means inclus- including every community's voice and those of us who are in journal journalism bill you know this that you know how decisions were made during our day of course social media has changed changed everything things are pretty topsy-turvy now but um you know you when you sat around the table as an editor you had your input decisions Mm -hmm. were made what's going to be on the front page uh if you weren't there that perspective wasn't was not uh reflected in whatever decisions were being made so um there's still so much fear almost of the African-American voice. And I try to say to white people, don't be afraid of the Ameri- African-American voice. Don't be afraid of the American African-American creativity. But a lot of the fear is, I think, of, you know, when you have a successful president like, like Obama, you know, followed by what you have now, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it gives you, a, you know, a, um, an idea of, uh, you know, the disparities. And uh, I think I've said enough about that. (laughs) No, but uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with pioneering journalist Dorothy Gill. Stay tuned. Our guest is the legendary Dorothy Butler Gilliam. Uh, She's uh, the author of Trailblazer a pioneer journalist fight to make the media look more like America. Uh, it's just a tremendous, uh, tremendous memoir. Here you talk is something, I remember my father who passed away when he was 94. Mm. But I remember, and you know, my, my dad was not necessarily a militant, you know, he's a solid African American educator. But I remember when he was about 92, and this is after Obama, he said, you know, I thought that if I lived this long, I'd see things get better, but they're not. And it struck me as at the time is so, I said, wait a minute, we have a black president. We have, you know, you know, that kind of stuff. But in a profound way, it's probably true in that it's almost like a merry-go-round. You do make quote unquote progress, but then you have this regression because I, I guess people have always seen black progress as a threat or, 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 or white people. 
mm-hmm. it's almost seen, you know, if, if black people gain, it's at their expense. You know, so, and that's what seems to be so troubling. So here you are in your 80s, and you're looking at everything you describe in your book, and you're like, wow, we're still, I think, what did you just say? People are still afraid of our voice. There's still, there's not this, I guess, coming together that maybe you envisioned, you know, in, in, the, in the 70s or in the 80s. Yeah, I, I think that it was pretty clear, it was pretty clear that there's always been this back and forth uh, in terms of, you know, blacks make a little progress and then there's a, there's, there's a, a, a time for quite a lot of white progress. Uh, and uh, I don't, I have never been, you know, naive enough to think that things haven't changed. I mean, you know, things should be changing permanently. Uh, my hope is that when we do make progress, uh, then that that there can be, you know, a solid step forward. Uh, but I can, uh, I really understand the uh, the way so many people do feel just discouraged by saying, "Will this ever change?" Uh, but I, I just don't see, I don't see the the validity in that viewpoint because it, uh, you know, when you when you resist, you have hope. Uh, when you, when you, mm. when you say, uh, um, oh, I give up, they're never going to do it right, uh, then, uh, you know, you really almost write your own script and they'll say, right. you know, well, it was your fault, you know, you didn't push enough. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's right. There's so many things that struck me about your book, but you know, as, as journalists, it, it's so difficult, I think, for, you know, because our hours are long, and mm-hmm. we're we're on even before social media. It's a twenty four seven industry. I mean, that's Absolutely. one of the things that I know Aaron and I tell the young road fellows. You know, they spend some time with us, and you know, we're working from dusk to dawn. I said, listen, this may not be the life for everybody. Right? <laughs> you yeah, know, there's no doubt and, about it. And one of the things that was struck me when you wrote this book, when you wrote about, um, I, I think the chapter was being Mrs. Sam Gilliam, nineteen sixty two eighty two. And as I was reading through that, I, I thought, man, this is really, it was such a great chapter because it was more, it wasn't just about, you know, covering the story. It was about your life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the, and the, the, there was a lot of stuff going on there, whether it's, you're talking about depression, whether to actually be a, be a wife, mm-hmm. be a mother, and, and be a, a you know, this, black woman journalist in a highly competitive field and the toll that it took. And I just thought that it had to be hard for you to, or challenge for you to write that. Yeah, that was one of the hardest chapters in the book. Uh, my ex-husband is, uh, is an artistic genius and he's still working uh, at the age of 85. Um, and, um, you know, he has health challenges, but I just, you know, I, I just didn't want to write anything that would hurt him. And my daughters, who are all in their fifties, I have three three daughters, and uh, unbelievable. <laughs> they, they uh, you know, grandchildren, and you know, I've been very blessed with all of that. But um, you know, they were they they gave me some pushback on that on the chapter, and hmm. uh, I you know I hope that uh, that it is nothing that will be hurtful to him. I have to haven't shown him the book yet, so we'll just. Oh. <laughs> We'll I, think, I, think, week. I think we'll leave that sensitive, that sensitive issue there. Right. 
Yeah. But I guess the point is, is not to people should read, but, but it's just when you do these types of things, you have to make a decision. When you write, I keep thinking about when you finally write your autobiography, you have to, do, you have to really decide, are you going to write it or are you not going to write it? Right. Exactly. Are you going to follow the truth where it leads and say, well, we'll just kind of hit, hit, hit the important dates, but leave the flesh and blood out. And you really left, you really put the flesh and blood there. This is really what, it's, what it was like mm-hmm. to be, you know, Dorothy Gillum, you know, uh, it's just not all awards and, <laughs> you know, yeah, cry, it, you know. You, it, you pay a price. Yeah, uh, yes. And yes. Uh, I, I didn't feel the book would help anybody if I didn't if I didn't, uh, you know, talk about the price that was paid. And I think so many people in so many professions, you pay a price. But you were you were right in terms of talking about the hours the uh you know the spe- the special strains the 20 the 24/7 but i i didn't want to go on a giant ego trip with this mm-hmm. book you know i wanted to write something that i thought would be helpful that could start some conversations mm-hmm. that could could you know bring earlier perspective onto a new generation uh mm-hmm. so uh we we will see what happens you know i i still go to press boxes today in 2019 and I'm like the only there may be one or two African Americans in the press box. I go to events like the Super Bowl or or the World Series, and you know the sports industry has expanded to. I mean, it's like a multi, almost a trillion dollar business. But when you go in these places and you see things like event production, digital, we're still not in that space as Black folks. I mean, we're in the space of running and jumping under, you know, you know, in, but. There's so many areas where we just don't even, we're just not even in that space. And kind of get to your point, like, darn, man, I mean, you know, you know, but like you said, you have to kind of just put your head down and keep grinding. And maybe that's the lesson of your book, your career, what I do. This is an existential grind. It never ends. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, one of the hopes I have um, is that, you know, there there will be some progress that looks better than what we see today. Right now, uh, Aaron mentioned diversity fatigue. Uh, as the industry has gone through all of these these changes, you know, with the with the newspapers uh, uh, having fewer employees, uh, news newspapers uh, retracting, uh, social media, you know, gaining ground. The presence of blacks in the newsroom has has dropped dramatically. Uh, there was a time when we were really all deeply involved in this fight, and you know we had over thirty percent of African Americans in the media. This year, when the American Society of News Editors uh, wanted to find out, uh, they were trying to do their annual census, and um, they got so little response, they really couldn't come up with a number. But we know mm-hmm. that the diversity and, and power and influence, especially inside the legacy media, uh, you know, is really is, is, is dropping. Yes, the New York Times has an executive editor who is an African-American, and that, that is something that we are pleased about. Uh, but uh, one of the things that was recently reported in, reported in Richard Prince's journalism uh, column is that uh, there, there, there has been, you know, again, an overall drop 
there, I think the increase has been more on the television side right. uh, mm-hmm. uh, and more women and, and people of color there. But uh, there, it makes a difference if, uh, if for whatever reason, we are not around the table. And I think to me, they, there's been a conscious decision uh, that, uh, that, that, that these voices don't need to be heard. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we have to keep speaking up and speaking out. Uh, and, and as I said, as the, as, as we've been the pioneering minority in this nation. And so many others have followed in our footsteps all over the world. You know, you can go to, you know, Tiananmen Square in China and they're singing, We Shall Overcome. Mm. Uh, you know, we, this, um, resilience, you know, that grows out of our experience and our tenacity. <laughs> In, you know, in the face of these horrendous odds, we've known joy and we've known sorrow. But, you know, we just are, I just think we, I'm just so proud of, of African American people because I think there's a, a uniqueness uh, about it. And it's, it's not the, you know, the, the stereotype of the magical Negro, you know, that, right. I mean, that's, and the, stu- <laughs> right. and the stereotype of, of the, uh, you know, the white savior, that, those kind mm-hmm. of, stu- you know, but just looking at the reality of, you know, this this year, 2019, we will have been in America 400 years. You know, mm. 276 years as slavery, 100, 100 years as uh, Jim Crow. And, um, you know, we are we're still pushing, you know, so when uh, when uh, white supremacists, you know, try to say that, you know, they don't exist or, you know, we've got it wrong. You know, we know better. I hope hope we will push past any diversity fatigue and know that, yeah, we have, it's going to take some, uh, we're going to have to fight, but we, you know, we can win. Uh, one, one last thing for me, uh, but just some of your thoughts about less pain. You know, we lost less. Yes. Um, kind of suddenly and tragically not long yeah. ago. Uh, yes. And you, you, you served as the president of NABJ, and, you know, of course, Les was the president one of the founders. Just uh, some of your thoughts about Les in the context of, you know, we're losing so many pillars and, and what that means in terms of, you know, those of us, I guess, who are kind of older and just, you know, carrying the torch and passing the torch on. Mm-hmm. Well, Les Payne was an incredible journalist. He was a man of, of strength, of keen intelligence, he was a person who uh, knew the importance of being present. He continued to come to the NABJ convention to uh, share his wisdom to, with young people and other people. Uh, he opened so many doors, and uh, he he was a role model for so many of us. He had been in the service, and you know he came with uh, a very strong idea of what black journalists should do and he shared that that information that insight you know it's a, it a big loss but um hey dorothy thank you thank you so much our guest has been the wonderful dorothy butler gilliam her book is trailblazer a pioneering journalist's fight to make the media look more like america and that fight continues it's a textbook on perseverance and survival Dorothy, thank thank you so much. You're thank wonderful. you, Bill. And it's a remember, Trailblazers is also a good read. Yes, 
<laughs> it is, actually. It is a page turner. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Uh, before we close out the show, I just want to address Clemson University's decision to visit the White House. That, that's it? You're not, yeah. yeah. What about, you know, the him serving yeah. Burger King and yeah. Wendy's and no. McDonald's and Reggie Bush that's is it. upset about it? No. No, that's it. Thanks for listening to HBCU <laughs> 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. If you have comments, tweet us at the undefeated, hashtag Roden Fellows. I'm on Twitter at WC Roden. That's W-C-R-H-O-D-E-N. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at Erin on Air. That's E-R-Y-N-O-N-A-I-R. The show was produced by the incredible Erin Matthewson. Special thanks to Tarika Foster-Brasby and Kyrie Williams. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as The Right Time with Bamani Jones, The Morning Roast, by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>